Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousands, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, And with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. In the history of the world, it has not been uncommon for treason to be punished with death. I remember some uh, years ago, R.C. Sproul describing sin as cosmic treason against the King of Kings. Because sin is so much with us, so common in our daily experience, we can come to think of it as being a small thing, an insignificant thing. But this certainly casts it in a different light. It is a treason that is deserving of death. Sin is bad. All sin is very, very bad. Impenitence makes it worse. Much, much worse. The same king against whom we have wrought treason visits and he calls us to repentance. And sometimes we willfully and self-consciously refuse. Uh, He has shown us our sins. He has called us to repentance. And we, in our hardness and in our brazenness, simply refuse to turn and to reform. Uh, 
Sometimes we are less brazen, but still quite unwilling, and so we throw up a cloud of deception and obfuscation. We make excuses concerning our sins, as if the ancient of days had uh, grown foolish, or, or as if his eyesight had grown dim, and he was no longer able to see in our hearts. This is sometimes described um, by our forebears as a practical atheism. Even as we acknowledge that there is a God, we frequently behave as if there is no God. And we make excuses as if he were not able to penetrate those uh, excuses. All of this reminds us of the ugliness of our sins, the sinfulness of sin. But this is not only a uh, dishonor upon the king of kings, but there is a tragic folly in our impenitence. We sin against our own comforts. You've heard me use this language before, but when we refuse to repent, um, our conscience remains agitated. So here, repentance has been given to quiet the conscience in some measure, and yet we refuse. We will go on with our agitated conscience. We are so infatuated with our sin. And it also shakes up our assurance. Uh, here in our impenitency, we shake our assurance right down to the ground. Because, of course, impenitence doesn't look very much like the fruit of a real and living faith, does it? So not only do we sin against our own comforts, but we also sin against the remedy that has been designed to help us. And as the Puritans will say, there are hardly any sins that are more dangerous than sins against the remedy. If you sin against the remedy, what help is left for you? And so here is the antidote to our sins, our repentance, and yet we refuse it. And if we refuse it, what is left to help us? Our text actually provides us with warnings and helps to move us on to victory over sins uh, in which, because of impenitence, we have remained for too long and they have for too long too easily beset us. Allow me to try to make a display here of uh, the situation as we come to verse 20, which in some ways is a new section. It, but it looks backwards and it also looks forward. Uh, literally, they would call it a Janus. It looks in both directions. We have to remember the Lord's, the causes of the Lord's controversy with his people, the visible church in the Roman Empire. It all started with the Constantinian settlement of the church, which led to the church being thickly sown with tares. Uh, probably... Uh, 49 parts in 50, unbelieving. Uh, so here the visible church has largely become uh, unbelieving. And uh, we can't necessarily say that this has been a rare thing in the world. But with this, if you remember the discussion, worldly-minded men cannot see a spiritual Christ in simple spiritual ordinances. To the worldly mind, nothing could be more boring than a word read and preached 
and prayers. These are boring things, and even our sacraments. A little water, a little wine, a little bread. Um, To the world with its love of grandeur and pomp, these don't appear to be anything at all. And they can't see Christ in them. They don't have any spiritual vision that would uh, reveal the glory of these things. And so they begin to make alterations to the worship. And one of the things that they start to do in the in the fourth century is um, uh, propagate uh, a different doctrine of the sacraments and baptism in particular. The early fourth century is the time of the the rise of the ex opera operato doctrine, that the sacraments actually communicate grace simply by the working of the work, simply by the doing of it. Grace is. Uh, communicated. So baptism began to be taught as something that actually washed away sins. Of course, now the worldly-minded man can get into that because he knows water, he can see water, he likes to think of himself as being cleansed and forgiven and at peace and so on. The spiritual ordinance, that this is a symbol that is pointing to a spiritual reality and a spiritual Christ that must be received in a spiritual way that is by faith. They have no taste, no savor for that. So away with the old doctrine and its spirituality, we want a new doctrine and a new practice with its carnality. They're worldly-minded men. What else would you expect? But the Lord is quite provoked. We see in chapter 8 the apostasy advancing. Now, they would not only uh, place the sacrament and the priest who administers the sacrament as mediators between them and God, but now uh, you have the rise of the cult of the saints, uh, uh, departed saints, and so on. So these became the new mediators in the late 4th century. Uh, men, women, and children leave off praying immediately to God through the mediation of Christ. They said that approaching Christ directly just doesn't seem humble enough. So they will go to St. Ignatius or some other departed saint or martyr, and they will uh, ask him. And then he will go and ask Christ. Uh, You remember the doctrine of the scripture is, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But here other mediators have been introduced and they're beginning to multiply. The sacrament itself communicating grace, the priest who administers the sacrament, the church who authorizes him to do that, uh, departed saints and martyrs. This is anti-Christianism. Not against Christ, at least not overtly, but displacing Christ. That's its primary definition in Greek. And so Christ is being pushed into the background and all of these other uh, uh, mediators are crowding him out. When men received benefits from these others, they wouldn't go back and thank God or Jesus Christ. They'd go back and thank the martyr and the priest that administers his shrine. And it's not finished. In chapter 9, we see the the progress of the apostasy hastening on. There was a full discovery 
of uh, the idolatry and the anti-Christianism in all of this. Uh, the Muslims discovered it to them because the Muslims will tolerate no idolaters, but they would make war against the Mariolatrists and those that would worship martyrs. Uh, this got at least some Christian people thinking. You might think of uh, the Polycians as a group. They began to cry out against uh, the idolatry that was involved in the martyr worship and the icons and so on. The kings of the 8th century, the Asarians, began to complain of this uh, idolatry in the church and wanted it taken down. So the sin that perhaps had been perpetrated in a former age in ignorance is now fully discovered. And yet the Eastern Church uh, refuses the service of the golden horns. You remember for ancient Israel, Leviticus chapter 4, when a sin committed in ignorance had been discovered, particularly pertaining to their holy things, there was to be a sacrifice, and uh, that sin that is portrayed as defiling the holy place, the place of their meeting with God, blood was taken into that golden altar of incense, and the blood was smeared upon the, the horns. And in this way, by blood, the, uh, the meeting place was purged, and the way of fellowship with God was opened once again. The Eastern Church neglects this service of the horns. They refuse to repent. The horns are portrayed as crying out, or at the very least, a cry goes up from those four horns for judgment. And judgment does indeed uh, come. Now, if we take a, a retrospective glance at the history the first four trumpets sounded against the Western Roman Empire, and by degrees they were worn out by the barbarian invasions. The war brought uh, the destruction of agriculture. The destruction of agriculture brought, brought poverty and famine, and fa famine brought in its wake disease. And this continued to waste the Roman Empire until there was nothing like Roman government left by the 5th century. All the time, the Eastern Empire and the Eastern Church is watch watching all of this, and they don't learn anything. War comes to them. There, were, there was the sounding of two trumpets in the East. First, the Saracens are unleashed to sting, but not to kill. They repent not. And so then the Turks are unleashed, this time to deliver the killing blow. Constantinople had uh, stood inviolable for 1,100 years. That is a long time, but in 1453, it fell to the Turks, and that is where we left things, the destruction of um, the Eastern Roman Empire, the destruction of the Eastern government. Verse 20, the first part of it, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the work, works of their hands. So as I mentioned, the, the fact of the matter is that neither the West nor the East repented of their idolatries nor of their anti-Christianism, the, the introduction of all of these other mediators. And they, they refused repentance in spite of judgments, judgments that they felt or watched in their neighbors 
And they're equally responsible for both. You remember when when God complains against Judah through the prophets. They had watched the fall of the northern kingdom. They should have learned spiritual lessons. Why did God overthrow that kingdom? What was the cause of God against them? But Judah neglected the lessons, but was yet held responsible for uh, the lessons. First, the east watched the west. They didn't learn anything. As uh, the west is reviving now under the barbarians, they look east and they don't learn anything. The repentance, uh, the impenitence continues. They continue in their impenitence, not only in spite of judgments, but also in spite of mercies. I know that there's not a lot of emphasis upon mercy in these chapters, but you should note that the judgments come on by degrees. It's not the killing stroke right away, but by degrees. And there's a judgment, and then there's a pause, and there's a judgment, and then there's a pause. The goodness of God leading men to repentance, as it says in Acts. And then finally... The witnesses for the truth are beginning to multiply. And so no, no longer can they claim ignorance concerning these things. Judgments, mercies, and witnesses. And yet they are impenitent still. Just a, a note to be specific here. I want you to notice it says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by the plagues. Textually, if you look at the sixth trumpet, it was... It was a third part of the men that were described as having been killed by that plague. So it does appear that uh, the, the uh, gaze is shifting back to the Western two-thirds, the Western Roman Empire and Illyricum, if you, if you remember that. So uh, the third part are described as having been destroyed here, and now the gaze looks back west. They have been watching all of this. They have been frightened by the Turks, and yet there's no repentance on their on their part. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we turn to chapter 10 that almost all of the focus is upon the Western Roman Empire at that point. In some ways in the East, things have not changed. There's really no update from that time to this time. Uh, the constant uh, idolatries of the Eastern Christians and the nearly constant vexations of the Muslims have continued from that time to uh, to the present. In spite of all of this, the text says, they repented not of the works of their hands. In spite of judgments, mercies, witnesses, all, they will not repent. And we'll talk some more next week, Lord willing, about what's intended here by the works of their hands. I do think this is likely taken narrowly as their idolatries. It's a very common way of describing idolatry in Old Testament language. It is possible that it refers to all of their sins, distinctively their works, uh, because they're not things that are commanded, authorized, or even allowed by God. Simply their works in a negative sense. That's also possible, although I do think the more immediate connection here is specifically with uh, idolatry. So there was no substantial repentance and reformation in the East or the West. But one final thing, because we're going to talk about this in the history. Um, When it says they will not repent, it implies two things. Looking backwards and looking forwards. It it implies that it it tells us something about what they were doing all along the way. Right? 
So they were doing these things, and at this point they still won't repent. So it tells us something about the past. But inasmuch as they won't repent, it also tells us something about the future, right? And it also gives us the reason why the seventh trumpet, the killing trumpet, must sound against these things. They will not repent in spite of all of this. For our purposes, what we're going to do over the next handful of Lord's Days is look at, um, particularly at the Western Roman Empire, her idolatries and anti-Christianism, but also some of these other things. When the first table of the law falls to the ground, you shouldn't be surprised to find murders and thefts and so on, um, adulteries. Uh, to get, get some sense of this, you remember when when Luther was so excited because he was going to Holy Rome. Do you remember what he found there? Uh, he described Rome as an open sewer. He thought he was going to the holiest place on the earth, but he found brothels specifically designated for clerics and so on. He said, this is the great ungodliness of the place. Um, precipitated a reformation so offensive it had become to even the common moral sense of mankind much less much less the word of god i thought before pressing on however that we ought to take some time and consider uh, the things that aggravate impenitence as i mentioned earlier sin is always bad Sin is bad whether whether you engage in it knowingly or unknowingly. Of course, it becomes worse when we do it willfully, knowingly, and with a high hand. But it's always bad. Uh, When God calls us to repentance by his word, we are responsible for what we have read, whether we are able to connect it to our particular sins or not. So this is one level of aggravation. We have committed these sins, If we don't know better, we ought to know better because we do have God's word. So we're responsible even in our ignorance. And as we're reading through the scripture again and again, and it's pointing out these sins, whether we pick up on it or not, if we continue impenitent with respect to those, this is one degree of uh, aggravation. It does properly become impenitence. In your outline, I've, I've included larger catechism 150, and 151, and impenitence is just one kind of sin. So what is said here uh, certainly imply, applies to impenitence. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And then 151 is very rich. I've only, I've only included a, a part of it. I've included all of its principal heads labeled here one through four, and then number three in particular at some length. What are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? Sins receive their aggravations first from the person's offending, two, from the parties offended. Three, from the nature and quality of the offense. If it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins. If not only conceived in the heart, 
but breaks forth in words and actions, scandalize others, and admit of no reparation. If against means, mercies, judgments, light of nature, conviction of conscience, public or private admonition, censures of the church, civil punishments, and our prayers, purposes, promises, vows, covenants, and engagements to God or men. If done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapse after repentance. And then four, from circumstances of time and place. If you go up into the heart of number three there, I want you to notice in particular, if against mercies, judgments, and then look down just a little bit, public or private admonition, and the censures of the church. All of this is worth thinking about, but I do think that um, our text here in Revelation chapters 7 through 9 really highlights these three facets that uh, aggravate our impenitence. Again, um, our impenitence is aggravated when it is against admonition. And of course, in our text and in the history, the, the sin of the Eastern Church was against admonition. The Asarian kings, their faithful theologians, the Polycians, even the complaint of Charlemagne in the West, and so on, uh, the idolatries of these things had been discovered. The church had been uh, admonished, and yet they neglect the service of the horns, and there's a cry that goes up for judgment. They had neglected the admonition, and then the cry goes for judgment. There's a lesson for this in us, and it ought to make us ashamed in our impenitence. Sin is ugly in and of itself, dishonoring to God in and of itself, unprofitable for us in and of itself. But then the shame is compounded by the fact that God has given us his word. He hasn't given all men everywhere in all times, but he has given us his word. And not only that, and this is what aggravates this so much, it's it's as if it's not it's as if it's not enough that he gave his word, he also then sends us help. Ministers or brethren that come to us and they admonish us. So if we weren't making the connection between the word and our particular sin, God then sends another help. And here comes your brother, and he taps you on this shoulder and he says, Look, I want you to look at this scripture passage. And I want you to think about your behavior. I want you to think about your your life. And so God gives us one help after another. And what a shame it is when we still refuse. When we will still hold out. When we will st- still stand it out against him. And refuse to repent. The larger catechism even strengthens it when that admonition comes Uh, from the church in her corporate and more formal capacity when we won't even hear the admonition and and rebuke of the church. That's an even further degree of this uh, uh, 
of this uh, impenitence in the face of admonition. Remember what we said this morning, discipline has been given as a gift to the church. When we're struggling with a particularly stubborn sin, it's, uh, it's a gift to us to help us uh, with these things. And so we sin against the gift. We refuse the gift and uh, the benefits that it's designed to bring to us. And so what are we to expect from God's hand if we will not hear, if we will not budge, if we will not yield, if we will go on refusing, if we will go on making our excuses? Um, what are we to expect from his hand? Well, Revelation 9 has already taught us the cry goes up for uh, punishment. And um, remember, God is no respecter of persons. He uh, certainly whipped the Eastern Church sore for its impenitence. That whipping, in a lot of ways, continues to the present day. And uh, he'll do the same with us, corporately or individually. He sends his word. He sends his uh, admonishing agents. And if we still refuse correction, we can expect the rod Uh, to come behind it. But interestingly enough, uh, God uh, frequently will not only send admonition, but he'll frequently send his uh, judgments. And this is exactly what happened both in the West and in the East. Um, uh, The West and the East were impenitent, and so he would send his judgments with a view toward uh, correction. But they were uncorrected it's interesting after all of that think about the long and weary course we have charted through from revelation chapter 8 through to the end of revelation chapter 9 as we have watched stroke after stroke and blow after blow imagine living those things it's a weary course just to listen to them but they lived these things they were impenitent that's their reaction and so god's arm is stretched out still These two little verses, 20 and 21, are an explanation as to why the seventh trumpet must need sound. The third uh, woe is on its way. It's a frightful thing, hardening under chastisement. Have you ever seen this in a a child? Um, You think about about your little ones. God's given you some tools. Um, for reaching the heart. And so he's given you the the rod of discipline, and so you chasten. uh, The design of the whole thing is to do what? It's to soften the heart. But what a frightful thing when you see a child get his back up and he will harden under um, under the very means of his softening. It's a sin against uh, the remedy. Uh, I have seen this all all the time in, in grown people, spiritually, that the very means that are given for their softening harden them. And that is frightening. If they're going to harden, it's, it's almost like um, you've got a flame, uh, and the intention of the flame is to soften. And if you are wax, it will work. 
But if you are clay, it won't work. You will just get harder and harder and harder. Although the intention, say, of igniting that flame was to soften. You see, you see the problem and, and the quality of the, the clay is being revealed under these things. I have seen some uh, softened by the Lord's chastening. I have also seen a great many get harder and harder strokes of providence and strokes from the church and yet no repentance and just persistence uh, in the sin. Now put the aggregate picture together. Uh, you remember, uh, we had it recently in, in uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah where the Lord complains, you know, I rose up early and I stayed up late sending messengers and yet you would not repent. And the aggregate picture is very much like that. God gave us his word. He sends us his word. And then right behind his word, he sends his messengers to help us make the connection between the word, its specific teachings, and our specific sins. And yet we still won't repent. And now the Lord draws out his rod. We're done talking. You'll hear the voice of the rod now. And he begins to take us to task with his rod. Frequently strokes in his providence, strokes from our brethren in the church, and if we'll be hardened under this, that is a great hardness indeed. We show ourselves to be recalcitrant, uh, immovable children. You know, the uh, rod does have a voice its own, of its own. Micah chapter 6, verse 9. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. We're... we're expected to be able to hear and to understand the Lord's intention when he bears the rod with us and against us. And uh, I frequently pointed this out to, to my own children. We are created as rational and spiritual creatures. Words ought to be enough for us. Words are spiritual things, and they speak to the spiritual man. When the Lord needs to take out a stick and whip us, we show ourselves to be little better than the horse or the mule. How do you control a horse or a mule? You put a bridle in his mouth and a whip on his back. And the Lord says it's a shame when we act like mules rather than people. Psalm 32 verse 9. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. So he said, you ought, you're you men with understanding. You ought not to need a bridle in your mouth and a whip on your back to get you to cooperate. So act like people of understanding. And it's a great shame to us when we need the lash but how hard we have become indeed when we won't even hear that. What a high provocation to the Most High God. And then finally, um, it aggravates it when, when we sin also against mercies, when we continue in impenitence in spite of mercies. As I mentioned earlier, our text doesn't highlight the mercy of God, but the mercy of God is implicit throughout it. Because in spite of the greatness of the sin, uh, the Lord is long-suffering. He does not kill them at a single blow, but he sends, uh, he sends uh, a sequence of judgment and rest, judgment and rest, judgment and space for repentance. 
And it's part of the great shame and the aggravation of their sin that in spite of his mercies, uh, they won't respond positively toward him. But there are mercies implied in the text indeed. As it says in Lamentations, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Lamentations 3.22. Consider your mercies. We are people that enjoy a good bit of temporal welfare. This is a mercy from the hand of the Most High God. He has provided for us a church and congregation. And uh, he has made it of a relative, relatively easy and open access to us. Not all of our brethren uh, have this. You have uh, day by day and Sabbath day by Sabbath day the gospel ringing in your ears. If we are heavy laden with anything, it is helps so that we might do well and thrive spiritually. And probably all of us can say we have felt the chastening hand of the Lord from time to time, but we are not destroyed. He has always given us a space and a season for repentance and frequently the grace of repentance so that we are improved both by the uh, seasons of chastening and the seasons of rest. But when you put all of these things together, what an ugly aggregate picture. The Lord sends his word. He then sends his messengers. He sends his judgments. But in all of his judgments, he remembers mercy And if we will not repent in the midst of all of that, we have become very hardened indeed. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. You remember one of the sins of the people of the land before the captivity had been their their easy commixture with the unbelievers around them, the unbelieving uh, nations. They they had been in direct violation of God's word by contracting marriages with uh, with these pagans. The Lord had punished them by captivity. He had shown them mercy by recovering them out of the captivity and bringing them back. And now they're doing the same sin over again. Ezra is beside himself. He is portrayed as having torn his clothes and he is now wallowing in the dust. And we pick up with uh, verse 6, his prayer. And I said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. So here he notes that their ongoing sin is in the face of notable judgments upon them for these very things. Verse 8. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes 
and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. So he says, judgment should have instructed us. And now God has given us these great mercies and we sin right in the face of the mercies too. And persist in the same things that destroyed us before. Verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. They have sinned in the face of God's express word and the admonitions of the prophets. Now therefore give not your daughters, well he's actually continuing with the reading, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land. And leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds. And for our great trespass. Seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And hast given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break thy commandments. And join in affinity with the people of these abominations. Wouldst not thou be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? So notice what Ezra expects. So the Lord has tried to correct us by his word and admonition. He has tried to correct us by his judgments. He has uh, even encouraged us by his mercies. If we will not be reformed by all of this, certainly the Lord's next action will be the killing blow. And this time, no remnant and no escaping. Verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. For we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespass. For we cannot stand before thee. Because of this. I want you to consider your sin. Your most stubborn sin. Uh, Consider the admonitions. The judgments. The mercies. All designed for uh, your reclaiming. Why don't you just surrender? Surrender. Why don't you just give way? That old life that you've been living with, that sin that has too easily beset you, why don't you just forget it and leave it behind, hearing the call to uh, repentance? Hasn't it it been sufficient for us? You remember Paul says, uh, 
The time that we spend in the midst of the of the Gentiles has been sufficient. Rather, Peter, it sufficeth us that time we spent doing the works of the, of the Gentiles. Isn't it been enough and more than enough? The warfare with God and standing out in this sin. And then you get this gentle and gracious call to repentance. Just turn around. Forget that old way of living and leave it behind. And may God meet us with the grace of repentance so that we might do so indeed and be a new people so that we might each be a new individual no longer encumbered by the shackles of the past. Oh Lord, grant it, grant it. Let us pray together.